0: well, good morning. Isn't God good? I mean, isn't God good? I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I'm like a closet charismatic. Um, You know, last last night I uh, was listening to one of our songs, the theme song, you know, Jesus, You Alone. Anybody listen to that song? Jesus, you alone, oh my gosh, so beautiful, and I was dancing, you know, I don't do that in front of people usually, but I do that alone with the Lord, and occasionally with my wife, but like, this was such a beautiful time in the Lord, and you know, this morning reminds me of that, because where there is freedom, that's where Jesus is, right, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, so are you free to worship him in spirit and truth? Yes, you are, you just don't always know it, so praise our God this morning, that he is setting us free. All right, well, I'm excited to be with you as we continue our series. You know, um, if you've been with us, we're in the fifth week. And uh, the fifth week is the point where I stopped trying to summarize. So we're going to save that this morning. If you haven't heard some of the messages, please go back and listen to them on the website. But I wanted to give you a fuller kind of context of the scripture that we've been focusing on. We've been focusing on this word from Isaiah 61.3. And I'm going to read it to you this morning in the context of verses 1 through 3. This is the capping of verse 3, but I want you to listen to it all. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners I have a question for you. Just by show of hands, how many of you have tasted the crown of beauty? How about the oil of joy? The garment of praise? Have you tasted those things? If you've tasted them, don't you want more of him? Now look, I'm going to propose something to you this morning. This scripture was written hundreds of years before Jesus walked our planet, and yet he was talking about Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is the good news. He is the gospel. And Jesus repeated these words in the temple at Nazareth when he spoke. He said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. He actually quoted this almost verbatim. Now, initially, that that elicited some good response from the people there in Nazareth, but then they got really ticked off at him. They tried to throw him off a cliff. You believe that? That's in the scripture. They tried to throw him off a cliff. You know what it says? He just walked away through the crowd. Isn't that awesome? He's like the powerful son of God, don't you think? If you've got a mob of angry people trying to throw you off a cliff, you think you're just going to walk through the crowd? But that's Jesus. He just walked through the crowd, walked away. Why? Because his time hadn't come yet. You see, he's the sovereign one. But this scripture is saying that instead of your ashes, you're going to be given a crown of beauty. Instead of mourning, you're going to have an oil of joy. Instead of a spirit of display, you are going to have a garment of praise. God is speaking about those of us who have a relationship with him through the blood of Jesus. So I have a question for you this morning. I know that you all have down times. I have them down too. But if this does not describe your life, the question is why? And can I propose to you that it may be because you're not trusting God? Maybe it's not definitively kind of describing your life overall. Look, I know that we weep as Christians. I'm not trying to paint a picture of Tiny Tim tiptoeing through the tulips. I'm not. That's a disgusting picture anyway. Do you remember him singing that? Tiptoe through the tulips. Oh my gosh, wasn't that bizarre? I remember watching him going, what is this? What's going on? And some people paint that picture of the Christian life like somehow it's just all a rose garden. That's not what Jesus said. He said, in this life, you will have great trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. But if you're not experiencing the joy of the Lord, if you're not experiencing the oil of joy and the garment of praise, at least in part in your life, if that's not defining your life, can I propose to you that it may be because you're not trusting him and risking for the cause of the kingdom? For when you take step of faith, when you trust his goodness for your life, and you go out there for him, I'll tell you, God's glory rushes in. And you experience this joy from God that is unmistakably him. And it's a joy that you can't get anywhere else, but only from him. You see, God calls us to be these oaks of righteousness as we rest in him we risk in him in order to be formed by him so we're found in him that's our trajectory and this week we're in week two of risking i hope you're trusting god to take some risks in your life to actually listen to him and to get out of the boat because today we're going to talk about walking on water and can i tell you something you will never walk on water unless you get out of the boat and God is prompting you to get up and move or to be still. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But it, is, it says here, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now look, you are not saved by your faith. You are saved by the grace of God. It's a gift. The blood of Jesus Christ poured out for us. So say this, I am saved by grace. Saved by grace. Through faith. See, what happens is it's a gift. God gives it to you, but you receive that gift. You receive that gift, and you believe on that gift, so that means you trust in the faithfulness of God as expressed in the person of Jesus Christ. That's faith. And faith without works is is dead. Now, we we don't work to be accepted. We work because we are accepted. I didn't dance in my little studio last night to God to be accepted by Him. I danced because He loves me. I danced because He already accepts me 100%. And when we risk for God, we're not doing it to be accepted by Him. We're doing it because we are accepted by Him. Look, God has taken care of your eternal risk. If you get this, this will change the way you live. You are sinful. You were born onto this planet and, and had a sinful flesh. Yes, you were precious in God, eyes. Yes, you're created by God. But you were distant from him. You were broken from him. You were dead in your sin. And Jesus Christ died for you. So then when he chose you, when you came to him, you now become his. And you now have eternity taken care of for you. You no longer need to worry about spending eternity in hell. Is that not good news? You get to spend eternity in the presence of God. God has taken care of your eternal risk. That is the greater risk, greatest risk you could ever face. Now look, if that risk is taken care of, don't you think it frees you up a little bit to risk some here on planet Earth? You've got nothing to worry about. You have nothing to fear and you have nothing to prove. You're 100% acceptable before God and when you catapult out of your Earth suit, you are going home to Him forever. So let's make this time count. You see, don't be so preoccupied with all this stuff the world has to offer. Your soul finds rest in God alone. He is your salvation. So you need to live your life for Him by walking in faith. And today... We're going to talk about walking on water, perhaps uh, an illustration in Scripture that is one of the greatest examples of trusting Jesus in faith. So how many of you are familiar with the story of Jesus and Peter walking on water? So today we're going to talk about this, but there's things that I learned this week in studying this that I didn't know before. You've got to understand the context of this story. Right before Jesus walks on water and then Peter goes out into the water with him, you have Jesus feeding the 5,000. That's a misnomer, by the way. It was probably more like 25,000 because the scripture says it was 5,000 men, but there was also women and children there, so it was probably 25,000 people that were being fed by Jesus. Check this out. The dude is speaking words of life and light. He is actually attracting these huge crowds of people that are hungry for something real from God. They don't know he's God yet but they know he's speaking these words and crowds are assembling around him. So the disciples are his team and they're like, whoa, check this out, all these crowds. They're like, "Um, Jesus, like they have to go somewhere because they need to be fed. Like they're hanging out on the hillsides for you, but they haven't had anything to eat. They got to go somewhere to eat. And Jesus says, well, you feed them. And the dudes are like, what? What did he just say? He said, well, you feed them. Now, I don't know what's in your refrigerator, but can you imagine if Jesus asked you to feed 25,000 people for what's in your refrigerator right now? They were like, "Uh, Lord, we only have some like loaves and fish. That's all we have, just a few of these things. He's like, well, hand them out. And they're like, where is this guy from? What is going on? And so they start to hand out the loaves and the fish, and what happens? They start to multiply. This dude can make food. How many people like food? Oh my gosh, food is so good. Food is so good. And the people at that time, they liked food too. So, you know what happens? They actually collect leftovers. There's more than enough for 25,000 people. And it started with a few loaves and a couple of fish. Who is this guy? Now, you gotta understand something. We as people are naturally narcissistic, that's part of our sinfulness. You know what that means? You think of you first. I've said this before, but I'm going to use the illustration again because it's such a good one. When anybody takes a group picture, who do you look at first in that group picture? You don't look at your wife or your husband. You don't look at your kids. Oh, how Susie look. And what makes you recommend that we take another one? It's because you don't like the way that you look. Why? Because you're obsessed with you. And see, that's the problem. These people were obsessed with themselves and were obsessed with themselves. And so don't you think this left open the door for the prosperity gospel to be preached somewhere? Why? Because Jesus is giving out free food. Dude, if we hang out with him the whole time, he'll just feed us all the time. We can quit our jobs. Hey, honey, bring the kids. He's feeding everybody. We'll just hang with Jesus all the time. We'll get everything that we want. And can I tell you, that that is still being preached here on planet earth and can i tell you that message called the prosperity gospel is from the pit of hell you know why because jesus isn't about the business of doing what you want jesus is about the business of doing what he wants because he's god and you're not so if you think you're going to come to the lord and get everything you want you're sadly mistaken what he's going to do is change what you want and he's going to give you everything that you need so that he will be glorified because frankly it's about him And not about us. That's a hard pill for us to swallow in our flesh. But the scripture says he fed all these people and then immediately Jesus makes the disciples get in a boat and go out in the middle of the lake. Listen to this. He put the little kingdom in a little boat and he sent them out into the middle of the lake. Now when Jesus does anything like that, it's Intentional. So you have this whole thing, we're going to get into a few minutes, where he walks on water, Peter walks on water, there's a storm going on. But you have to understand, the very next day, you have the feeding of the 25,000, you have them walking on water. The very next day, we find Jesus in Capernaum, and he starts to talk about himself as the bread of life. And he starts delivering these messages that are, frankly, very hard for people to hear. It says, the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. They said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and you drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up in the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And people are going, yuck. What is this guy talking about? They're feeling this sense of disgust. Now, Jesus explains later to the disciples that he is speaking in a spiritual language when he says these things. But people are misunderstanding Jesus like they always do, and many of his disciples, people that are learners, students of Jesus, they leave him. They go, this teaching's too hard. And they just walk away. Let me ask you a question. What teaching of Jesus is too hard for you? He in his word enough to know. Because I'm telling you, there's times where I get in there and I get highly offended. Anybody say amen to that? You want to get offended? Just look at your relationships and then read 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is gentle. Doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. Doesn't keep any record of wrongs. Anybody feeling a little bit convicted? Me too. Me too. Why? Because God's word is a sword. It divides joint and marrow, soul and spirit. It shows the motives of your soul. And so Jesus is speaking these spiritual words. People are misunderstanding him. They get all ticked off and they all grumble and walk away. And there's a bunch of them left, the 12, and he's sitting with them and he asks them a very important question. He says, are you going to leave too? And I imagine there's just a moment of silence where they look at each other and they look back at him and Peter says, Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, these guys have been so deeply rooted now in their knowledge of who Jesus is that even when the chips are down and everybody else is leaving, they're sticking with him. Can I tell you why I really think what happened the day before cemented their relationship a little bit? I really think what happened the day before gave them staying power because they believed Jesus as a result of something that he embedded in them. That happened between these two events. So we're going to dig in now to Matthew 14. That should read 14, not 4, verses 22 through 32. And if you want to follow along, you can open your Bibles with me. So immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. This is after the feeding. Go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So get this picture, got 25,000 people there. He says, guys, get into a boat, go out in the lake. And then he dismissed the crowd. And what does he do? (laughs) He goes up to a mountainside by himself to pray. Stop. Do you know Jesus does this regularly? If Jesus has to do this, how much more so do we have to do this? So he goes away on a mountainside to pray. I love that, you know. Got this huge crowd there. He fed them all, performed this miracle. He says, guys, get on the boat. Go out to the lake. And then he dismisses everybody and he goes up into a mountain to talk to his father. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, being buffeted by the waves because of the wind that was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake, and when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified, don't you think? Imagine this, you're in a storm, and there's somebody walking on the water towards you. Obviously, that's something you've never seen before, and they cry out, and they say, "'It's a ghost!' And they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Now that little phrase, don't be afraid, is repeated over a hundred times in scripture. Its sentiment, its same exact meaning, is repeated hundreds of times in the scripture, don't be afraid. Last week we talked about the effects of fear in our lives, but today we're going to talk more from this story about how to take risks. So Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Peter replied, Lord, if it's you, tell me or command me to come to you on the water. What is Peter thinking? So you said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And just one word from Jesus changes Peter's life. Jesus says, come. Peter got out of the boat. He walked on the water and he came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. And he said, you have little faith, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were on the boat worshipped him. (laughs) Don't you think? (laughs) Truly you are the son of God. Those are such important words. Truly, Jesus, you are the son of God. When they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him, and they begged him to let the sick sick even touch the edge of his cloak. That happened before with the bleeding woman. And all who were touched it were healed. So we want to look at these words to help us understand how to trust him to walk on water, to take risks for the cause of the kingdom. So here's the first thing we need to do. We need to learn to recognize him and his voice. Say this, I need to learn to recognize Jesus. You know why? Because you miss him all the time. I do too. And he's constantly with you. He's always at work around you. And you need to learn to recognize him, to join him in what he's already doing. Because if you do, then he's going to ask you to step out of the boat. So look, the disciples, they did not recognize this guy. And that was, it happened numerous times throughout scripture where they didn't know that they were even entertaining Jesus. They thought he was a ghost. The word in the Greek is a phantasm which is where we get a phantom from, and there it was, it was a superstition at night around water that ghosts would come out and bring evil upon certain people, or phantoms would do that. So maybe the disciples thought that this was a phantom, and evil was coming upon them. Regardless of what they thought, it was clear that they were absolutely terrified. The word in the Greek means that they were in a state of extreme panic. I saw a video the other day depicting this. I was going over the, over the scripture and these guys were on the boat and he starts walking through them and they're like, oh, just like this little trembling. And I'm like, that's not what it was like. They were in extreme panic. You know what it says, they cried out in fear? That word in the Greek means shrill, loud, extremely loud screams. They were screaming like a bunch of adolescent girls that see a spider. They were screaming at the top of her lungs, a group of 12 adult men. Can you picture that? 12 adult men are screaming at the tops of their lungs. They are horrified and they're freaking out. Then Jesus spoke to them. Now this is very important, you understand this, because this is the same voice that spoke all of creation into existence. All things were made by him, for him, and through him. Nothing has been made that wasn't made by for him. Through him, this is Jesus now speaking. And he says, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Easier said than done, right? I mean, like these guys were panicked, man. And, and even though this is said by Jesus, don't think that they immediately went from being 100% on the, on the panic scale to like ready to take a nap. I don't think that's the case. I think that their emotions went down slow. Why? Because ours do too. I used to teach, uh, listen to the teaching of this guy named Bill Gillum. He was a Texan and he was like this cowboy and I loved his accent and the way that he taught. And he said, emotions go down slowly like a BB sinking in an oil. You ever drop a BB in oil? No, probably nobody ever did that. That's kind of a silly thing to do. The ball bearing or something, but can you imagine it's this resistance, there's this drag, and they just go down really, really, really slow. That's what happens to your emotions. So when you're afraid, when you're angry, anybody get angry? Anybody get hurt? When Jesus comes into that setting, it doesn't immediately resolve your emotions right away. Even though you know the truth of God and God is speaking into you, it's not like you go from 100 down to zero. You've got to pass through 90 to 80 to 70 to 60 to 50 to 40. This is why married people, when you're fighting with your spouse, get some resolve and get away from each other for a little while. Why? It helps you go in your closet with Jesus and let your emotions go down. Then you come back together and you're far more reasonable. Anybody say amen to that? Because you say stuff and do stuff out of your fear rather than out of your faith. Jesus says, take courage. It's I. Ah, he's speaking into them. And we can imagine that their, their emotions are going down slowly, but they're not ready for a nap. They need some time to recover just like we need. But here's the truth. Many of us don't often recognize Jesus. And then even when we recognize him, we don't hear him speak to us. You know, this is true in scripture. He, he says this even about his people. Listen, when he talks about the sheep and the goats, he said, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me in prison. I was in prison, you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? Or when did you see a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you like God? When did we do these things? And when did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? And the king will answer them Truly I say to you, as you have done it for the least of these who belong to me, you have done it for me. What is Jesus saying? What's he saying? He's saying that he lives in us. Would you turn to the person next to you and say, I see Jesus in you. Now some of you are, I see Jesus in you. Now turn, turn to them again and look at them. And I don't want to get too uncomfortable here, but I'm calling you to take a risk. Turn to them again and just say, look, I really see Jesus in you. Now look, when you see Jesus in other people, you learn to submit to Jesus and other people we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ where's Christ he lives in us so when you see him at work and the people around you do you recognize him now you can see him in a sunset praise the Lord you can see him in your dog and your cat and one other you know one of those pot-bellied pigs it might be a little harder but you can see him there you can see him in all these places. and all that he's made, you can see him and recognize him. But can I tell you something? He's calling you to recognize him in other people. Why? He says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, in that you love one another. Are you willing to submit to Christ in those around you? Are you actually able to recognize him? This takes great intention, and it takes great attention For you learn to recognize him and therefore take risks in him. You need to hear his voice say to you, do not be afraid, I am with you. Look, his promise is he will never leave us nor forsake us. Can I guarantee you this? Jesus will not let you drown. He set the little kingdom in a little boat out in the middle of the lake and he had no intention of letting those dudes drown. Why? Because the kingdom was entrusted to them. And he had a plan for them. And his plan for them was that their roots would go deep into the soil of his love so that they would do, they would stand after having done everything, that they would be strong in him. You see, God has a plan for your life, and that plan is that you would be steadfast in your faith. But wind has to come to you in order for that to happen. My prayer is that we wouldn't even just wait for the wind to come to us, that we would run face headlong into it we'd be like Peter. You see, Peter's a barbarian Christian. You know what that is? That's somebody who hasn't learned the script enough to know what not to do and what to do. He's just a barbarian. He's like, I love Jesus. I'm just going for it. And he just jumps out there. But we got to recognize God first. How many of you are familiar with this guy? Where's Waldo, right? Right? We used to do this with our kids when they were young. We had some Where's Waldo's books, and if you, if you understand what you're doing, that little guy right there is Waldo, and you turn to a picture page in the book, it looks like that, and you're supposed to say, Where's Waldo? Of course, we, we, we were like, why well, don't the kids are old enough for this? We don't want to kind of defeat them or whatever. Or whatever. So I think we were showing it to either Noah or Zach at one point, and we opened the Where's Waldo book, and we said, Hey, you're supposed to look for this little guy, and he goes, Oh, he's right there. I'm like, put my reading glasses on. I'm like, Tracy, he's right there. He found them. I'm like, well, that must have been a coincidence. I flipped the page and I go, where's Walter? He goes, oh, he's right there. And we flipped literally through like three, four, five pages of that book. And he goes, oh, he's right there. Oh, he's right there. And I was like, what is going on? Like some kind of savant or something, you know? <laughs> like, of course, you think my kid's a remarkable kid. But no, that wasn't that. He was like, God was speaking to me. Why? Because that picture is like your life. That picture is filled with chaos, don't you think? And can I tell you something? Waldo's in that picture. Anybody find him? You know what? He's right there. He's waving. But you know, for us to recognize God, you know what needs to happen? We need to become like children. You see, I think what God showed me in my son at the time was he was completely unimpeded by the things that distract me. I'm getting fully distracted by the picture and I'm like trying to do this and just like, oh, he's right there. Can I tell you something? God is like Waldo. He's in straight view of you. It's just the problem is you're filled with distractions. And the, pro- the solution is you need to understand you are like a child. Can I tell you, these dudes were up a creek without a paddle. They knew they were dependent on God. They understood there was no hope apart from Jesus in their lives. Do you get that today? Or do you need some more Convincing. I don't know about you, but some days when things are good, I don't really realize I need God quite as much. Do you understand what I mean? I kind of go, well, God is going good. I got it from here. And he's like, no, Jeff, you idiot, stop. Now, some of you are going, he just said that God called him an idiot. Yes, God does call me an idiot, and I know he loves me. So he's not saying it to me because he's trying to downplay me. He's trying to humble me. There's a difference between God trying to hurt you and God trying to humble you. And he may say things to you like, Jeff, why are you being so stupid? Haven't you learned this yet? You know that, that you're dependent on me. On your best days, you're dependent on me. So humble yourself before me. These guys were like desperate, little, defensive, defenseless kids. They knew they needed protection, and they knew that it needed to come from God. And they recognized him, and they heard from him. They knew that they needed him. So God calls us to do the same. So we need to recognize him and hear his voice and we need to ask for him that his will will be done and to walk toward his will. Now look, I'm gonna say this very clearly. Some of you are gonna talk about, are gonna take in what I say next and you're gonna really love it. Others of you are gonna rebel against it. I'll I'll get to the other group of people in a second. So sometimes when you hear from God and ask his will and walk toward him, you're gonna be asked to take action. And that action will come as a risk to your flesh and your flesh will scream and you will be in the middle of this war between God's spirit and your flesh, between the evil one and the kingdom of God. And I pray that you would submit yourself to God in such a way that he would win each of those battles along the way. Some of you, however, the greatest risk for you will to be absolutely doing nothing. Sometimes the greatest risk you can take is just to pray and then back off. Now, for folks like me, who happen to be fixers, that is crazy faith. Anybody in here a fixer? Get your hands up. (laughs) People are throwing their elbows. Look, if you're a fixer, what's very difficult for you is when God says, no, just be still, trust me, talk to me, but do absolutely nothing. And I'm like, but God, I know I can fix this. He's like, Jeff, sit down, shut up. You're going to mess it up. No, God, I I really know that I can play a part in this. I'm going to go. And what I'm doing is I'm assuming on God that somehow he needs me to get his job done. You know who I'm talking to if you're here. Some of you are showing the physical signs of that. And some of you are going, praise God. He just said, one of the ways that I can trust him is to do absolutely nothing. And you know why you're saying that? It's because you're used to doing absolutely nothing. You're probably married to someone who's a fixer and you're the one who's sitting there going, wow, that's great, praise God. I don't have to do anything. Can I tell you something? God knows your personality and you're the kind of person that he might be saying, get up and move. Oh God, I like the other answer better. Can I just be still? Yes, be still in me while you're moving. Go. See, the problem is that we assume on God. We don't know whether we're supposed to move or stay. We don't know if we're supposed to be still or get up and do something. But we assume sometimes based on what feels most comfortable to us. And can I tell you, If you must become uncomfortable for the glory of God. You must be willing to do that. Last week I shared with you that I was losing some sleep. I hardly ever do that. I was losing some sleeps about an interpersonal issue. I'd get up 2, 3 o'clock in the morning and my brain would just start going. And I would go to the Lord with that. And I would, by the end of two hours, praise the Lord, or three hours, I would be able to go back to sleep again because I love to sleep, right? But God would answer the cries of my heart. Can I tell you what he told me to do about that interpersonal issue? He said, just sit down and do absolutely nothing. But God... See, I was ready to make all kinds of phone calls and I was ready to do all kinds of stuff and everything like that. And he said, you're going to mess it up. Leave it alone. You know what happened in the middle of this week? That issue was completely resolved. And you know what? I had nothing to do with it. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So look, we don't know whether we're supposed to go or come or what we're supposed to do. We don't know if we're supposed to stay still or or actually get up to action. This is why I love Peter's words. He said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, that word shows something that's really incredible. It shows that Peter is already in a place of submission. He says, Lord, if you command me, I'll come to you on the water. But only if you command me because I want to submit to you. He says, just give me the word and I'll do it, God. How do you hear commands from God? How do you hear commands from God? You go to his word. Look, his word is filled with commands. You trust the spirit to reveal his word to you. But you these promptings from God. You'll hear promptings from God as well in the Holy Spirit. But you have to go to the word. This way you test all spirits. And you also read stuff that may deeply offend you. How about this one? Confess your sins to each other and pray that you might be healed. Some of you in here may be living with a secret sin. Some of you in here, maybe you've never confessed this to anybody. It's something that you only know in your own heart, in your own head, and it's something that you practice and nobody else knows about. Maybe you've done something in your past that you're ashamed of. I don't know what it is, but if God comes to you and says to you, hey, I want you to confess that sin to others and pray that you might be healed, what are you going to feel? Fear. Panic. You're going to want to scream like a little girl. I know it. Why? Because I've screamed like a little girl in my head and in my heart. I remember I was at a party once. This was years ago in Timonium. And I met this guy. I ended up striking up a conversation with him. Ends up he's like one of my best friends in the world right now, years later. But I ended up striking my conversation with him at this party. And it was a church party. So we started talking very vulnerably to one another. And I had done something in my youth that I had never told anybody about. I I wasn't proud of it. I was ashamed of it. I wouldn't even repeat it here. I just wouldn't say it. But I had done something that I wasn't proud of at all. And God says, seriously, in my spirit, I hear him say, tell this guy that. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not telling this guy that. I, even, I just met him, even though we're being vulnerable. He says, I want you to tell this guy this. Now, I have two options when you hear something from the Lord. You can either obey or you can grieve the Holy Spirit. How many of you ever grieved the Holy Spirit? Doesn't that feel horrible? Oh my gosh, my spirit just goes so down. Like, I've been, I've been told by God to go to certain funerals and, 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 and tell people the gospel. I've been told to visit sick people and tell them the gospel. And you know what? I didn't go. And, and I get grieved in my spirit. Because why? God's Holy Spirit is grieving when you don't obey him. So in this situation, I had learned enough and I just went, okay, I'm jumping out of the boat, God as we're talking, I just said, hey, I just feel prompted to share this with you. And I shared this thing I had done in my youth. And the guy had this horrified look on his face. He looked aghast. He was like, and I thought, oh, I've done it. <laughs> I don't know why God, you told me to do that. And he goes, Whew. he says, I don't know what's going on here. He said, but I." he looked at me in the eye. He said, I did that too. And I swore I would never tell anybody in my life that I ever did that. And God is right here working through you to get me to confess that I did exactly the same thing that you did. You know what that did for our friendship? Mm. To this day, that man is one of my best friends in the world. you imagine what I would have missed out on if I didn't obey God? I don't know what God's calling you to do. He does say things like this, love one another as you love yourself. Forgive one another as you've forgiven yourself. So if you're hit, sitting here with a resentment in your heart, you got some work to do, right? Um, he says, look, if you're giving your gift at the altar and therefore you find that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and first go and be reconciled with your brother. How many of you have ever been hurt? How many of you think that somebody might have something against you? you got work to do. Well, Jeff, you don't understand. Like, they're far more wrong than I am wrong. I didn't say it was wrong. All I'm just saying is that the scripture says, go, get out of the boat, man. Get out of the boat and go be reconciled. He says, bless those who persecute you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who are evil. Like he's saying, look, my way is not your way. As far as the heavens are above the earth, that's how far my ways are above your way. If you really want to trust me, if you really want to know me, you got to follow me, man. You've got to give to those in need. You have to repent of your sins and turn back to the Lord. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Can I tell you something? When you obey God, you're always moving toward him. I don't really think Peter was trying to be a show-off. I really don't think. I don't think he was. I think he was probably so scared, spitless, he didn't even care what people thought of him. You know what I think he wanted? I think he just wanted to be closer to Jesus. I think he was just so aware of his dependencies like, Lord, if you just tell me, I'll come to you on the water. Like, I just need to be close to you, Jesus, because right now my whole world is out of control. I just want to be close to you, Lord. Will you tell me to come? And Jesus says, come. And can I tell you something? Every time you obey God, you're moving closer to him. Look, he's always chasing after you. He never leaves you nor forsakes you. But here's the thing, when you look at Jesus in the face and you run towards him, that means you're being obedient to him. And can I tell you what that means? That means success in God's eyes. Jeff, what do you mean? If I, if I obey God, what if the outcome's bad? Well, I can tell you is you've been successful in God's eyes, even if the outcome is troubling because you've done your part and you leave the rest up to you. God God will bless your obedience. He's not going to bless it necessarily in the way that you think or in a way that you even want. But ultimately, you will be blessed by your obedience. And ultimately, it's really not about you anyway. It's about Him being glorified. You see, He's forming you so that others can see Him in you. So, we need to recognize Jesus. We need to ask His will and walk toward Him And we need to keep our eyes on him the whole time we're walking. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning, he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Listen to Hebrews 11 here. It says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run the race with perseverance marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Many of you know that little song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Do you know that one? You sing it with me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. See what he says? Your problem's the risk factors, the fear, the panic. It's going to start to fall into the shadows in light of who he is if you just keep your eyes on him. You see, the problem that Peter had was he got distracted and he focused on the obstacles rather than the solution who happens to be a person. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. What was he doing looking at the wind? He was looking at the wind. Why? Because he took his eyes off of Jesus and he began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. He got distracted. Listen to these words of Corey Tenboom. By the way, she was such a saint. She said, if you look at the world, you'll get distressed. Anybody say amen to that? Yeah. If you look within, you'll get depressed. Anybody say amen to that? Yeah. But if you look to God, you will find rest. And then out of that rest, she didn't say this, but then you'll be able to risk. You see, Peter was lurking at his circumstances and he starts to freak out and he starts to sink. How many of you have ever taken your eyes off of Jesus and started sinking? So he blows it. But look, the good part is he makes an immediate course correction. He cries out to Jesus. He says, Lord, your boy's going down. Do something. I'm sinking. And so Jesus hears his cry and he reaches out his hand and he saves him and pulls him toward him. How do you keep your eyes on Jesus? Well, there's a lot of ways that you do that, but here's the first thing I want to make a point. When you start going down, don't wait until you're at the bottom of the lake. You understand, Peter started sinking, and immediately he cried out to God. That shows maturity. Why? Because every single one of us will take our eyes off of Jesus, because none of us are perfect. The thing is, when you do take your eyes off of Jesus, cry out to him the minute you start to sink. Don't wait until you're like over your head in water or at the bottom of the lake. You've got to cry out to him in real time. And can I tell you something? He'll always answer your cries. How do you keep your eyes on him? Philippians 4, I think, has a good answer. It says, rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. That's a great promise. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus. Now listen, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. What's he saying? He's saying, become myopic on the goodness of God. You see, when Jesus tells you to get out of the boat and take a risk for him, what you need to do is focus on him by focusing on his goodness and keeping in your mind those things that are of him. Yes, all kinds of things can happen, but he is faithful. You can trust him. So we keep our eyes on him and we let him catch us when we fall. Now this isn't easy for some of us. See, none of us are perfect, but we really do think that we have it together. And when, and when it comes to us that we don't, <laughs> we have to swallow a little pride. He says he cried out to Jesus and Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him and he said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, by the way, I've been to churches that use a different inflection when they read those verses. Everything about communication has to do with tone and inflection, does it not? You can hear those words like this, you of little faith, what's the matter with you? Why did you doubt? Now, by the way, if you hear that kind of language from God, I would fire that God immediately. That's not this God. This God loves Peter, and he says, why did you doubt? Oh, you of little faith. Come on, Peter. Like, you know me. You trust me. Come on, trust me more. I love you. Just trust me more. You see, when we start to go down, we have to let him catch us. And then we always like the ways he wants to catch us. In 1987, I was younger, and I liked the Ford Taurus. It just looked really super cool. And I wanted a Ford Taurus so I can impress my friends. I don't know why anybody would think a Ford Taurus would impress their friends. But I thought that, and I didn't really have the money to buy the Ford Taurus. So I bought the Ford Taurus, the car dealer sold me, which ended up being the worst Ford Taurus ever. It was a 1987 four-cylinder Ford Taurus, and it was torqued up so high that it couldn't handle its own strength. And so it was too big of a car for how they had it torqued up, and I cracked an engine block and went through three transmissions in the first year I owned the car. And the dealer didn't want to do anything for me that was a mess that I got myself into. So at the end of that time, I'm I'm thousands of dollars to try and get this car fixed again. And I'm like, God, like I'm going down. Your boy's going down. I don't know what to do. So I just pray to him and I go to my house church. I get in my house church and people are asking for prayer requests. And I just put up my hand. I just said, hey, you know, I'm in a tough spot financially. I got this car problem. Just please pray for me. I I don't know what to do, but maybe just have to let the car go and I don't know, rent a junker or do something, I don't know. So I put that out there, and this beautiful couple approached me after house church and they looked me square in the eyes, and it was several thousand dollars, and they said, We want to give you the money. And I went, What? They said, We want to give you the money, and I said, No, 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 I couldn't possibly receive your money. See what's going on? I couldn't possibly receive your money. They're like, Well, no, we really want to do this for you because the Lord prompted us to do this. And I'm like, I I really can't do that. Why couldn't I do that? Because I am a proud person. Do you understand I prayed that God would show me a way out? Do you realize that he actually gave me a way out? And you know what I was saying to those people? No, thank you, God. You know, a lot of us do that, don't we? When people approach us and they want to give us something, and do you know that when some people want to give you something, that if you don't receive it, you are robbing them of a blessing? It's not about you. It's about God. And, and the only way I had to do, I went back and prayed about it, and I called them the next day, and I said, you know, the reason why I told you no is because I'm a prideful man. Please forgive me. Can I still have your money? <laughs> and they said, they said, sure, we'd love to give it to you. And I, and I took that money, and I had my car fixed. And you know what? It humbled me. It humbled me. Help me to know that God loves me, and God loves you, and he will always provide a way out for you. The question is, will you take it? No, you say, God, I much might have a different way out. I don't want to have to be humbled in order to take the way out. He says, no, I have a dual purpose. I'm going to help you out here, but I'm going to humble you at the same time. Will you accept the help that I'm offering you? Peter, he takes Jesus' hand. Jesus reached out for his hand and he caught him. And he said, you have little faith. And he brought him up out of the water. When you falter and when you fall, God is there to catch you. The question is, will you take the way out? In Hebrews it says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to all people. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out that you may stand up under it. So the question I have for you is, will you take that way out? Because if you do, then you'll learn to trust him more in the midst of all the storms and in the midst of all the winds. So we need to recognize him. We need to talk to him. We need to walk with him. We need to keep our eyes straight on him. And when we fall, we need to let him catch us. And We have to let his faithfulness lead us to a place of worship. Now listen, I love this. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Listen, they were in a boat in a raging storm, scared, spitless already. They see him walking in the water. Peter jumps out. He walks on the water, starts to falter, and Jesus carries him. They get into the boat. Don't you think that's a good day? And they climbed into the boat, and the wind died down. Even the wind and the waves obey this man. When those who were in the boat, they worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, these are incredibly important words. Remember, the very next day, many of the disciples leave Jesus, but these guys don't. Why? They're growing their roots deeper into the knowledge of who he is. You see, they don't just know about him they know him experientially. They took steps of faith, and they even faltered. Peter did, but Jesus is the one who sustained them and carried them through great risk. And as a result of this, now they can trust and obey him even more. Look, when you tell people that you believe in God, that is a weak way for you to talk about your relationship with him. Because can I tell you why? Even the demons believe in God. Even Satan believes in God. <clears throat> no, no. God wants you to know Him, and the only way that you'll know Him is by trusting Him and getting out of the boat, man. That's the only way you'll know Him. So when people are saying, you're going to leave too, and Jesus says, you're going to leave too, they're like, where else would we go? Dude, you're the one who sustains us. You're the one who actually saves us. And then as a result of that, you got to learn to tell the story to other people here's my question for you. In this whole risking weeks that we've been talking, the last two weeks, are you ready to have God write another story in your life? The only way he's going to do that is if you trust him and you get out of the boat, man. There's no other way. I'm telling you, many of us are living out of old stories. I say, you got a story about Jesus? Oh yeah, I'll tell you 30 years ago when I was saved. That's a beautiful story. But what did he do yesterday? What did he do last week? Well, I don't really have any new stories. Can I tell you why? Because you're not getting out of the boat. How many of you want to let Jesus write a new story in you? How many of you are willing to get absolutely terrified in order for that to happen? Fewer hands. That makes sense. I appreciate your honesty. If you want to know God more, you have to trust him to take the risks and get out of the boat. So I'm gonna ask us to stand together and we're gonna close our time by singing another song. And this is what I want you to do this week. When you leave here today, I want you to become like a child before God. And I want you to ask him to help you recognize him and hear from him. And then I want you to hear his voice call to you and I want you to be willing to get out of the boat. I know it's scary. I know it's scary. Look, as many times I've done this, I don't really want to do it anymore. And yet there's a part of me that longs for greater life. Listen, I don't know what it's going to be for you. But if you obey him, I can guarantee you this. It's worth it every time. Father God, we come before you now and we acknowledge that you are God and that we are not. Lord, we thank you for the story of Peter. We thank you that he's just like us. A guy who believes Lord, help our unbelief. We falter and we fail. And Jesus, you're always there to catch us. Lord, help us to cry out to you before we get to the bottom of the lake. Lord, you're so faithful. You're so good. Help us to know your goodness in such a way that you write new stories in us and that we're willing to take the risk of telling the world just how good you are. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your faithfulness. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together.